Hello, and welcome to Ramblings with a Medical Historian. I'm your host, Nicole Curry, and this is a podcast where I ramble on about medical history. I look at strange practices, common misconceptions, and medicine throughout history. I also talk about some interesting Canadian and local history. This is Season 2, Episode 8. I'm sorry if the sound sounds a little bit off today, but apparently my microphone has decided to just die on me and GarageBand will receive no other input but my MacBook microphone. So, fun times! So let's continue to talk about residential schools. To start, I would like to warn you once again that the topic we are going to be discussing contains things that might be triggering to some individuals. We will be discussing the kidnapping and abuse of children and the genocide that was the Canadian residential school system. This will be a very heavy topic. There is a 24-hour crisis hotline. Former residential school students can call one 866 925 one nine for emotional crisis referral services and information on other health supports from the government of Canada. Indigenous people across Canada can also go to the Hope for Wellness helpline 24 hours a day, seven days a week for counseling and crisis intervention. Call the toll-free helpline at 1-855-242-3310 or connect to the online chat. I've put a link to the helplines in the show notes as well as a link to more information to begin your learning journey and learn about the Indigenous peoples of Canada. I would like to acknowledge that I'm a settler. I live between the Batchewana First Nations and the Garden River First Nations reserves on Robertson-Huron Treaty Territory. The Indigenous peoples of North America have been here for over 30,000 years. It behooves us to acknowledge and study Indigenous history. Today, I will be discussing the Canadian Indian residential school system that has had great intergenerational impacts. But before we begin, I want to quickly talk about an important day coming up here in Canada. So each year, September 30th marks the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. This is actually the second year that we have recognized this day. On September 30th, we also recognize Orange Shirt Day. This day honors the children who never returned home and their survivors of residential schools, as well as their families and communities. Public commemoration of the tragic and painful history and ongoing impacts of residential schools is a vital component of the reconciliation process. This federal statutory holiday was created through legislative amendments made by Parliament. Orange Shirt Day is an Indigenous-led grassroots commemorative day intended to raise awareness of the individual, family, and community intergenerational impacts of residential schools, and to promote the concept of Every Child Matters. The orange shirt is a symbol of the stripping away of culture, freedom, and self-esteem experienced by Indigenous children over generations. Now let's get back to our original topic of going through the chronology of the Canadian residential school system. 
We left off saying that between 1945 and 1955, the number of Indigenous students in day schools run by Indian Affairs expanded from 9,532 to 17,947. This growth in student population was accompanied by an amendment to the Indian Act in 1951 that allowed federal officials to establish agreements with provincial and territorial governments and school boards regarding the education of Indigenous students in the public school system. These changes marked the government's shift in policy from assimilation-driven education at residential schools to the integration of Indigenous students into public schools. It was believed that Indigenous children would receive a better education as a result of their transition into the public school system. September 4th, 1951. It is said the 60 scoop began at this time after amendments to the Indian Act gave provinces jurisdiction over child welfare on reserves. Over the following decades, more than 20,000 First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children were scooped from their homes and adopted into predominantly non-Indigenous families, leaving them with a lost sense of cultural identity. We will cover this in a later episode, or you can research it on your own in the meantime, as it is too big of a topic to cover today. 1951. The Indian Act of 1876, with many amendments, was repealed. It was replaced with the modernized Indian Act, conceptually similar to the previous Act. 1955, Jean Lesage, Minister of Northern Affairs and National Resources, the department responsible for the Inuit, got cabinet approval for broad education policy in the North. The general policy was to substitute settlement for nomadic life. A school was built at Chesterfield Inlet, followed by copper mine and ten hostels. Some Inuit had formerly been sent south to Indian Affairs schools. Destitute Métis were also enrolled. The residential school system expanded to northern Canada and the federal government took over the administration of many church-run residential schools in the north. Over the next decades, six schools opened in the western Arctic. September 1st, 1959, Grolier Hall and Stringer Hall opened in Inuvik and housed 500 students. The majority of students were Inuvialuit children who were taken from their families. October 23, 1966, 12-year-old Chani Charlie Wenjak died after escaping from Cecilia Jeffrey Residential School near Shoal Lake, Ontario. November 17, 1966, a coroner's inquest into Chani Wenjak's death was held. The all-white jury found that residential schools caused tremendous emotional and psychological problems. They recommended that, quote, a study be made of the present Indian education and philosophy. Is it right? 1969. 
Indian Affairs and the Canadian government took over responsibility of the remaining residential schools from the churches. Indian Affairs Minister Jean Chrétien produced the Assimilationist White Paper to abolish Indian status. It was strongly opposed by Indian organizations. The Alberta Indian Association produced Citizen Plus, known as the Red Paper, in response. The White Paper was retracted two years later. 1971 Blue Quill School in St. Paul, Alberta became the first Indian-run school following month-long continuous occupation by elders and others. 1972 National Indian Brotherhood, or NIB, was the predecessor of the Assembly of First Nations, produced Indian control of Indian education. They were advocating for greater ban control of education on reserves. It was adopted the next year by the government. 1975. Six residential schools close and 15 remain. 1976. The NIB, or the National Indian Brotherhood, proposed amendments to the Indian Act to provide a legal basis for Indian control of education. It was rejected by the government. After a series of fires in 1964 and 1972, Ile-à-la-Croix Residential School permanently closed in 1976. It was replaced by new locally administered schools, the Rosalingo Elementary and High Schools. 1978, the National Film Board produced the first ever film on residential schools called Wandering Spirits Survival School, about a non-traditional school organized by parents who had themselves survived residential schools. In 1979, thousands of Indigenous students were enrolled at the 28 residential schools that were running in Canada at the time. 1984, 187 bands were operating their own day schools, half in BC and the rest mainly on the prairies. October 30th, 1990, Phil Fontaine, head of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, spoke publicly of the abuse he suffered at Fort Alexander Residential School. He called for a public inquiry into the schools, which the federal government initiated in 1991. August 26, 1991. In the wake of the Oka crisis, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney initiated the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples with a mandate to study the evolution of the relationship between Indigenous peoples, the Government of Canada, and Canadian society as a whole. Now, just quickly, the Oka crisis, um, if you don't know, was um, it took place in Quebec and it was basically the town of Oka. Um, the mayor wanted to expand the golf course and they wanted to actually 
um, do it on the Indian Reserve. So they actually wanted to take Indigenous territory um, so that they could create their golf course, basically. Um, that's a really broad, um, like, that's a really vague explanation of what happened. Um, but there was um, big resistance and um, you can learn more about it. There's many good documentaries that were done on it. I would highly suggest checking them out because they can explain it much better than I ever could. 1993, Archbishop Michael Pierce, primate of Anglican Church of Canada, apologized to survivors of Indian residential schools on behalf of the church. 1996, Gordon Indian Residential School in Punakee, Saskatchewan closed. It was the last of the 139 federally run Indian residential schools in Canada. So we will leave off there for today and we will pick it up at another time going over sort of what happened after the last residential school closed. Now I hope you have learned something today and if you would like to know more or see the resources that I used, you can find them on my website that is linked in the show notes or episode description. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at Ramblings with a Medical Historian on Facebook and Instagram or at my email, which is ramblings.mh at gmail.com. Follow me on my socials to stay up to date with the episodes. Thank you for listening, and remember, keep rambling on.